Father, we want to thank you that you have given an incredible gift to us as a church. Lord, help us to understand the challenges, but to see that you're bigger than those challenges. Father, we pray that you will give us special understanding and wisdom this afternoon, and may we sense that our feet need to be on solid ground. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. How many of you have come across this concept that Ellen White is a hoax? By the way, we're going to have music next door. So every now and again, we just break into song and we'll join them. <laughs> We've got the music seminar. Any of you, how many of you have come across that concept? All right. Most uh, you, people look on websites. I worked for Amazing Facts for a number of years. And our evangelists would always complain that, you know, they would present stirring messages from the Bible. People would accept the, the messages. And then they would go and look up these websites and there'd be all these questionable things. And, they, and the, the people that were coming to the seminars, instead of embracing these truths, would end up getting disappointed and skeptical and leaving this message. So that's why we have to deal with the issues that are out there. They're now there for everybody to see. And so we want to be able to have a response. How are we going to deal with these kinds of issues? So is Ellen White a hoax? How are we going to deal with the challenges? And I believe the options are this. Ellen White could have been delusional. You know, that's one option. Uh, sincere but mistaken. In other words, uh, she was a lunatic. You know, uh, maybe she, she was sincere about it, but she didn't have 2 plus 2 didn't equal 4. So that's one option. Second option is she was fraudulent. It was all a carefully concealed hoax. She knew what she was doing, but she was a liar, and uh, she wasn't true about it. Or the third option is that Ellen White was who she claimed to be, a messenger of God, someone who received messages from God and communicated them. So this afternoon, we want to take a look and examine the evidence. Was she delusional? Was she a lunatic? Was she a liar? Or was she who she claimed to be, a messenger from God. Everyone clear on the issues? Good. By the way, that little uh, breakdown is very similar to C.S. Lewis's uh, grappling with, is Jesus the Son of God? So I've just used the same format to look at Ellen White. I'd like to begin with a quotation, and it's taken from uh, Testimonies for the Church, Volume 3, and this is something that she said, many think it a virtue, a mark of intelligence in them, to be unbelieving and to question and quibble, especially when you're in an academic environment. People like to say, yeah, you know, I, what do you think of this? And they break it down. They can give you every criticism. How many of you have ever taken the pastor to lunch, but he wasn't present? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We, we take him to lunch and we pull apart his sermon and we, we, we dissect it and, and, and really pull it apart. Well, Sometimes people do that with the Bible, and they do that with messages from God. Many think it a virtue, even a mark of intelligence, to be unbelieving and to question and to quibble. Those who desire to doubt will have how much room? Plenty of room. God does not propose to remove all occasion for unbelief. I mean, can you doubt if you want to? Absolutely. So he gives evidence which must be carefully investigated with a humble mind and a teachable spirit and all should decide from the what? The weight of the evidence. So is that fair? You get into a courtroom, they put the evidence before you, and you now have to make a decision. Can you always 
prove if a person is innocent or guilty. No, but what do you go by? The weight of the evidence. The weight of the evidence. God, therefore, gives sufficient evidence for the candid mind to believe. But he who turns from the weight of the evidence because there are a few things which he cannot make plain to his finite understanding will be left in the cold, chilling atmosphere of unbelief and questioning doubts and will make a shipwreck of his faith. How many of you know of people who've done that? I certainly do. People who just started with a few doubts and next thing they were overcome by their doubts, they made a shipwreck of their faith. In fact, let's be honest, there are moments in our lives when we've gone through that. You start thinking about, that's what God, does God really exist? Did Jesus really come? You start dwelling on those doubts and it sends you into depression and soon you don't know whether God exists or not. If you start taking these steps down this path, you could make a shipwreck of your faith. So when we come to doubts, when we come to questions, where should we begin? We should begin with, with the Word of God. Yeah, but what are we, how are we going to approach the Word of God? In, in what way? With prayer, which means you are going to nurture your faith. If you really want to shipwreck your faith in anything, then go with a real critical attitude. Go with, I've got a lot of doubts. I'm going to try and examine this and break it apart and break it down. If you want to build up your faith, you have to go with faith. Does that make sense to everybody? So we begin with faith. And that's how I want to deal with these challenges from a faith perspective. So I'm going to declare to you right off the bat that I believe that Ellen White was a messenger of God. I believe that she had messages, she received messages from God, and she shared those with the church. So that's my perspective. It's a faith perspective. Are you going to give me that? Good. So here are the challenges. Was Ellen White a plagiarist? Do you all understand what the word plagiarism means? It means she... Did she copy from others and the thoughts weren't her own? They were actually someone else's. Everyone understand the word plagiarism. Did Ellen White make false predictions? Was a head injury the cause of her visions? Was controversial information hidden or deleted from her visions? Did she contradict herself? Did she contradict the Bible? So these are the challenges that we want to have a look at this afternoon and to see what is it, how does Ellen White measure up against these charges? Because if it's true that Ellen White was a fake and a hoax and that Ellen White was actually copying information from others and she was just writing it down and she didn't have any visions from God, then I would say let's throw out Ellen White. You agree? If she was a hoax, let's throw her out. Let's not bother with her. So we have to instead examine the information and say, hey, is there more to the story? So the first question I'm going to begin with and go back to what I dealt with this morning. Did Ellen White fake her visions? You know, was she, you know, I, have you ever had somebody who fakes something? You know, like they, they get all sick and they're not really sick. Maybe, have you ever had kids like this? Have you ever been a kid like this? You know, oh, I feel, I feel terrible. You know, you got, a, you got an exam that day and you feel the headache coming on. You know, I feel I'm going to be sick tomorrow. I'm just kind of warning you in advance kind of thing. And then the next, oh, my head, my head. Men are like this when they get sick anyway. So they, they, you can tell when people are faking it, right? There's a, they're, they're melodramatic. Could Ellen White have faked her visions? Not at all. 
eyewitness accounts clearly demonstrate that she went into vision. She went into vision. Uh, she was unconscious of everything that happened around her. They would take a real bright light and shine that bright light right up here. She couldn't see it. Uh, she would, she wouldn't be, her eyes would be kind of staring ahead, but they would be moving slightly this way and that way. It wasn't demonic. I've, I've watched demonic possessions. Every description I've read of her, this was not uh, demonic oppression or anything else like that. She was unconscious of everything happening around her. She did not breathe. She, you could hold a candle right up to her mouth. It wouldn't flicker at all. She did not breathe at all. Um, now, there may have been subtle breathing taking place that they couldn't detect with a candle, but as far as anything obvious, there was no breath. Her muscles would initially become rigid. She would lose her strength, and then after a while she'd free up and her movements would become free and graceful. Then on coming out of vision, she felt as if everything was in total darkness. She couldn't, it was like she was in this black, black place, and she couldn't distinguish anything. Uh, she would have the ability to have supernatural strength. Uh, how many of you have heard the story of the Bible? The heavy Bible, she would hold out, be able to hold it out for like an hour. Now, you have to try this. Uh, just, just to give yourself an example, just hold a broom out. And uh, you hold it out like this for a while. And after a while, you'll find that you, you just get tired. She could do this for hours. And she could point to texts and quote those texts, go to the exact text. But she wasn't looking at the Bible. She would be looking ahead. And she would be saying things and, and moving the pages to the right text and showing them. She, things would be revealed to her. She would be like in a dark cloud. And then she would go into this vision. And she would understand everything about a particular topic that she had been confused about before. There were supernatural things that took place while she was in vision. You could not fake it. Everyone following with me? There's no way to have faked the visions. Uh, and later on, we'll come to, well, were these some kind of seizure? Is that what, maybe what was going on? First, we want to deal with this question. Did Ellen White plagiarize? Did Ellen White plagiarize? Now, again, what is plagiarism? Copying someone else's work and claiming it as your own. Now, does anyone know when copyright really came in? When did copyright really kick in? Does anybody know? This, this whole idea of copyright. Well, early 1900s. Early 1900s, this idea started to come about that you could take your works and copyright them so that no one else could access them. Why is it that it wasn't a big deal before that? Well, it was hard to do mass printing before we, we really had the technology. As the technology improved, so you could really do mass printings before that, you wanted people to copy your stuff. You, you understand? You had to get it out there. And so if they could get your th what you had and copy it, it was expensive to copy. And you wanted your material out there. So this concept of copyright is fairly new. And Ellen White, in her works, actually dealt with it like the great controversy. She said, look, I don't remember exactly all of the works that I reference, but you go through and find them and write it in so that we can comply with copyright laws because it was a new thing that came in in the early 1900s, beginning of the 20th century. So here's what we found. Ellen White did borrow from other authors. As they say, you know, if you... Uh, 
if you, if you only borrow from one person and you give no reference, that's plagiarism. But if you use many, it's called research. <laughs> so uh, you can ask students about that. So here's how she did it. Why did she borrow from other authors? Why did she, why did she use sometimes their phraseology and their words to express her thoughts? She says, in some cases, where a historian has so grouped together events so as to afford, in brief, a comprehensive view of the subject, or summarize details in a convenient manner, his words have been quoted. But in some instances, no specific credit has been given, since, this was her reason, the quotations are not given for the purpose of citing that writer as authority, but because his statement affords a ready and forcible presentation of the subject. In narrating the experience and views of those carrying forward the work of reform in our own time, similar use has been made of their published works. So break that down for me. What does that mean? What does that mean? This is from Great Controversy. What was she saying? Let's get some feedback. What was she saying in that statement? I want you to think about it. All right, just one hand. <laughs> I think more it wasn't given to show all these different instances of like, look, here's proof, look, here's proof. But it was given so the text would flow more naturally and people would read it more like, as they were reading the story. Here, here's what I see is driving Ellen White. She has to write down the whole history of the Bible. She doesn't have much time. She's nearing the end of her life. She wants to get it down. She's got various pieces of it written in different places. But she wants to get it down as quickly and as forcibly and powerfully as possible. What kind of education does she have? Very limited. She gets third grade. She goes a little further, studies on her own. But she has, she's a prolific reader. We know that. And she's trying to get this information together as forcibly and powerfully as possible and as quickly as possible. So then she has... She has this view of history, and she's looking in her books, and she sees somebody who's written out her view in a, in a great way, just, just the kind of words, the kind of phraseology she needs. So she uses, she, she takes those, some of those words, and she writes it down. Now, at that time, was that a copyright infringement? Legally, we've shown it was not. We took it to lawyers. And the lawyers took a look at this and said, as a church, they, they, they actually had a whole case. They said, let's go to lawyers and make sure that they can verify, did Ellen White plagiarize? Guess what the lawyers said? No, she did not. What she did was perfectly acceptable within her time. She used their words, but she used them in original and new ways to bring out new thoughts. Are you all following me? So she did not bring out exactly the same thought that they had, but sometimes she would use their phraseology so that she could write down very quickly what she believed God was expressing through history. And almost always she brought out spiritual lessons that were not in those original works. Everyone following me? So for historical details, sometimes she would rely on their works, but for spiritual application, she would often bring out her own devotional thoughts. So here are the facts. Less than 2% of all of her written work was quoted or adapted from other sources. So, I mean, look at that. How much, then, did she write? 98%. I had uh, a student who was talking about, you know, they've got turnitin.com, and what you do is you turn it in, and then it tells you how much your work is similar to other things that have been written. 
And I had a student who, who tells me that he wrote his own original work, because he, he, I didn't discover this. He came to me and says, look, I wrote my own original work. And it says that my paper is still 30% like someone else's paper. Well, why would that be? If it was his own work. Yeah, there's only so many English words, there's only so many thoughts on a particular topic, and so it can seem like you're saying the same thing as someone else. So I think it's remarkable, 98% of her work, hers. All right? Then in most cases, her use of other authors' words is less than 0.5% of her published books. Everybody getting that? In most cases. Now, there are notable exceptions. The Desire of Ages... Some say they did a comprehensive study of 15 chapters. It, this took the equivalent of half a million dollars research to do this research. They took 15 of the chapters from Desire of Ages. They then compared that with all the books that she could possibly have consulted. And they said maybe 30, 31% of everything that's out there is in some sense derived or expresses similar thoughts to some of the books that she read. They said the other, at least 61%, we know was absolutely original. Everyone following me? So in The Desire of Ages, there is a greater leaning. Why? Because what does The Desire of Ages have in it? It has a lot of historical detail, as did the great controversy that she needed to rely on. She, was, she wanted to make sure, remember, she has a vision, and we're going to come to that later on. She has a vision, but now she has to write this in words, and she's not sure of all the details. How many of you have had a dream at night, and you can't really remember it the next day? All right? Most of you. Now imagine you have a prophetic dream. Are you more likely to remember the details? Absolutely. But are there going to be some things fuzzy when you're writing about it years later? Are there going to be? So you want to express this as accurately as possible. What are you likely to do? Make sure that it corroborates with the Bible and with the evidence. Everyone following me? So this is what she does. She goes, she goes to some other works to make sure that as far as possible she can stick with what the original facts were. She cannot remember everything. And God is bringing to her what are the things that in Desire of Ages, what are the points that come out? that are specifically hers, the devotional and spiritual applications. Everyone following me? Those are specifically hers. But in terms of some of the factual details, she relies on other authors. All right. The Great Controversy, 20%. Sketches from the Life of Paul, 11%. And Steps to Christ, 6%. Though Ellen White's writings appear to have been largely derivative in the Desire of Ages, this was from the half a million dollar study. They do not lack, and I don't know if you can see that from the back, but there's a key word there. They do not lack originality. So after this study took six years, several research assistants working on it, after six years, he came to the conclusion, this was Fred Feltman, who was the chairman of the department at Pacific Union College at the time of the school of the theology department. Six years later, he comes to this conclusion they do, although there's derivative elements, they do not lack originality. Now, is this unusual? Let's take a look at some Bible examples. This is from uh, the contemporary English version of Luke 1, verses 1 to 3. Notice what this says. Many people have tried to tell the story of what God has done among us. By the way, do you think Luke was inspired when he wrote the Gospel of Luke? How many of you think Luke was inspired? Show me your hands. All right. Now, notice what Luke does. 
he says, many people have tried to tell the story. They wrote, so in other words, it was written down, what we had been told by the ones who were there in the beginning. And who's one of those who wrote down what they had been told? Mark is one of those who wrote down what he had been told. Who told it to him? Peter did, most likely. So the Gospel of Mark is probably was the account written down that Peter gave of as a disciple. He was right there. He had seen and heard it. And right at the end of the Gospel of Mark, there's this naked guy who leaves from the garden when Jesus has been arrested. And we think that that is young Mark running out of the garden. But anyway, so we all need our place in history. <laughs> So notice what he says. We're told by the ones who were near the beginning and saw what happened. So I made a careful, what's that word? Study of everything and then decided to write and tell you exactly what took place. Did Luke study other authors before he wrote down what he wrote? He did. And as a result, look at what happens. Much of the Gospel of Luke looks very similar to the Gospel of Mark. Now he corrects and he adds in medical terms. Why does he do that? Because he's a doctor, so he's going to write in those things. But he's studying it out, and as a result, there is a similarity. He has studied everything that's been written and everything that's been said, and he writes his account under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Everyone following me? All right, now, another example. Are there any other examples of people in the Bible who may have, quote, copied something that had occurred before? We do have an example in Isaiah 38. So I want uh, one person on this side to do Isaiah 38, and then uh, let's have over on this side someone to do 2 Kings chapter 20. All right, right what about right over here? 2 Kings chapter 20, and then uh, we're going to read Isaiah 38. Uh, so just read me the first two verses. In those days Hezekiah was sick and near death, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord. All right, Second uh, Kings chapter 20. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death, and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. All right, did you, as, as you read through these, and we could do more of an analysis kind of verse by verse, you will notice that they are almost identical. Oh, no. There's plagiarism in the Bible. <laughs> All right. Now, don't use this for classes because it won't work with your teachers. <laughs> we operate under a different environment today, you know, where you have to be so much more careful. <clears throat> but back then, it was perfectly acceptable to take inspired words, and if they expressed in the best words that you had something that was a divine thought, you could take that and apply that in your own writings. Everyone following me? So this happened in the Bible, and it happened in Ellen White. There's nothing unusual about it. All right, let's take the next question. What about false prophecies? Here's a prophecy. Didn't Ellen White say that England would attack the United States during the Civil War? All right, what about this one? That Jerusalem would never be rebuilt. And that there would be some alive in 1856 who, when Jesus came back, they would still be alive. All right, let's take a look at them one by one. Here's the original statement where it said that Ellen White 
said that England would declare war. So I'm going to jump down. Unfortunately, it's hard to read there. I'm going to see if I can uh, just make it so you can read that. Hold on. All right, so let's take a look at, uh, at this one. Right at the bottom, it's maybe hard for you to read. She has a statement. She says, When England does declare war, all nations will have an interest of their own to serve, and there will be a general war, general confusion. She's writing during the Civil War, and she says, it seems, that England will declare war. Did England declare war? No, therefore, she must be false, right? All right, let's take a look at what she actually says. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because you will find this kind of stuff on websites that are skeptical of Ellen White. And they use this, ah, you see, she made a prediction and it did not come true. Therefore, she must be a false prophet. But not as what she actually says. England is studying whether it is best to take advantage of the present weak condition of our nation and to venture to make war upon her. She is weighing the matter. So what is she saying here? She's used the word studying and weighing. What does that mean to you? She's thinking about it. She's thinking about it. And trying to sound out other nations. She fears if she should commence war abroad that she could, would be weak at home and that other nations would take advantage of her weakness. Other nations are making quiet yet active preparations for war and are hoping that England will make war with our own nation for then they would improve the opportunity to be revenged on her for the advantage she has taken of them in the past and the injustice done to them. A portion of the Queen's subjects are waiting for a favorable opportunity to break their yoke. But if England thinks it will pay, she will not hesitate a moment to improve her opportunities. Let me ask you a question. Does this sound to you very conditional or does it sound to you very definite? She's just going to declare war. What's that? Those in the back can't see where that's found. That's found in Testimonies for the Church, Volume 1, page 259. Thank you. So, so uh, Testimonies for the Church, Volume 1, page 259. So now, let me ask you a question. Based on this, is this a definitive England is going to declare war? No. no. It is obviously a very tentative. She's weighing her options. She's thinking things through. And then... She's using this phrase, well, when England does declare war, all nations will have an interest of their own. So she's, she's using it in terms of this. Look, if England makes this step and declares war, there will be general confusion. But England decided not to. You all following the train of thought? She waited up and in the end decided not to. And Ellen White was not declaring that England would uh, try and declare war. So let's take a look at a similar biblical situation, a similar biblical situation, Jeremiah chapter 42 and verses 10 through 19, a little longer section, and if someone can read that for me with a nice loud voice, Jeremiah chapter 42 verses 10 through 19, all right, who would like to do that, just raise your hand, yes, All right, so notice in this, 
uh, prophecy, is there a lot of conditionalism attached? He says, if, if, if. There's a lot of conditionalism that's attached to it. And then he seems to become fairly definite. Have you noticed what happens towards the end? He becomes pretty definite about Egypt and what's going to happen there. But is that a saying that this will definitely happen, or is it based on conditions? So in the same way, when Ellen White says, look, if this happens and if that happens, and then she makes a, what seems like a more definitive statement, just looking at a biblical example, we can see that it's still conditional. Everyone following? So that's how we would understand the statement. What about the phrase that she made in uh, 1851, old Jerusalem would never be built up? Has old Jerusalem been rebuilt? Yes, it has. It has, it has been rebuilt. So again, it looks like that what she said was false. But we have to remember the context and the context. She was not specifically writing about the bricks and the mortar. When she was referring to old Jerusalem being rebuilt, being built up, what was she thinking of? What do people think of when they think about Jerusalem being built up again? They think about God's people. They think about the temple being rebuilt. Isn't that where, where some Christians are today? There's going to be the rebuilding of the temple. What they're really saying is that Israel will become the place that everybody is drawn to. It will become a center of all the religions again. And what she was saying by old Jerusalem would never be rebuilt, she is saying that Jerusalem will not become the center of the nations again. Everyone following? So the context is clearly not about the bricks and the mortar. It's about this political influence. Ellen White was writing against a Zionist state in Palestine as a fulfillment of prophecy. In a September 1850 vision, she saw that it was a great error for Adventists to believe that it is their duty to go to old Jerusalem and think that they have a work to do there before the Lord comes. For those who think that they are yet to go to Jerusalem will have their minds there and their means will be withheld from the cause of present truth to get themselves and others there. In other words, they were so caught up in this philosophy that we have to build up old Jerusalem and we have to get the temple there and build everything else up that they were willing to sacrifice all their money and their means to do it. And so she said, don't waste your time and money. That's not where God's focus is. Was she right? Absolutely. It's all how you twist the words. So, so people twist the words and make her say something else. What about this statement? You know, I was shown in the company present at this conference, 1856, said the angel, some of here are food for worms, some are subjects of the seven last plagues, and some will be alive and remain upon the earth to be translated at the coming of Jesus. Now, it seems at face value again, that, hey, look, she made a prediction that some of those people would be alive when Jesus came and some would live through the plagues, and yet they didn't. So therefore, some people conclude she must be wrong. Again, I say they misunderstand prophecy. Everyone still with me? Am I going too fast? Okay, good. It, this was a conditional prophecy. It was written, it was written because he wanted... God wanted Ellen White to have that sense of urgency, and they could have been there. They could have been there when Jesus came, but it was conditional. Here's what she said. I forget, this was in like 1881. She's reflecting back on her experience with the passion that she had that she believed Jesus was going to have come before then. She said, The angels of God and their messages to men represent time as very long. Just seeing if you're awake. <laughs> That's very short, all right? 
Thus it has always been presented to me. It is true that time has continued longer than we expected in the early days of this message. Our Savior did not appear as soon as we hoped. But has the word of the Lord failed? Notice her response. What does she say? Never, never. It should be remembered that the promises and the threatenings of God are alike conditional. And uh, (coughs) I forgot to give the reference here. I'm sorry. It was not the will of God that the coming of Christ should be thus delayed. God did not design that his people Israel should wander for 40 years in the wilderness. Do you think God wanted that? Oh, yeah, you know, let's just go and wander for 40 years until you all die out. You know, that was not his intention. He promised to lead them directly to the land of Canaan and establish them as a holy, healthy people. But those to whom it was first preached went not in, why does it say in the Bible, in Hebrews, it says because of their unbelief. Their hearts were filled with murmuring, rebellion, and hatred, and he could not fulfill his covenant with them. Did he promise them he would take them to the promised land? Yes, he did. Did they go in? No. Wow. Have we been promised we would go into the promised land? Yes. Have we gone in? No. What is the cause? Us, our unbelief. For 40 years did unbelief, murmuring, and rebellion shut out ancient Israel from the land of Canaan. The same sins have delayed the entrance of modern Israel into the heavenly Canaan. In neither case were the promises of God at fault. It is the unbelief, the worldliness, unconsecration, and strife among the Lord's professed people that has kept us in this world of sin and sorrow so many years. In other words, why is it that Adventists haven't gone home until now? Because of our disunity, strife, and unbelief. I mean, I look at this and I am broken, folks, because I know it's true. We could have gone home by now. We're still stuck here because we, we just didn't, we, we didn't pull together and to preach God's love to the world. Amen? All right, so do we see examples in the Bible of conditional prophecies? We actually dealt with two of these this morning, and so I'm going to jump down. Uh, the one is uh, Jeremiah and uh, great section there when he's down at the potter's house. The other one is First Samuel when a message is given to Eli. We're going to jump to Second Chronicles chapter 34 and verse 28. Second Chronicles chapter 34 and verse 28. Now what I'm going to do in, uh, in the next section so that you know is I'm just going to field questions. I'm going to show you some statements. We're going to deal with some of the unusual statements made. But I'm also going to field questions in the next section. So this one, I just want to meet the challenges. Everyone with me? We're just going to meet the challenges. Second Chronicles 34 and verse 28. Let's go ahead. Behold, I will gather thee to thy father. Thou shalt be gathered to thy graves in peace. Neither shall thine eyes see all the evil that I will bring upon this place and upon the inhabitants of the same. So they brought the king word again. All right, which king was this? Let's get some feedback. Who was it? Does anyone know? All right, did he go peacefully to his death and sleep with his fathers and was everything good? Is that what happened in his life? It did not. So was the Bible wrong? Was this prophecy wrong? He disobeyed the counsel of the Lord. He disobeyed. Do you remember the situation? Absolutely. All right, what happened? Well, the, the, the Pharaoh himself 
had been shown by the Lord that Josiah was not to go out to battle against him. And he said to him, when he confronted him, he says, what are you doing here? He said, see, supposing God who is with me. Yeah, so Josiah went into battle against the Lord's command, even when a foreign heathen king understood that he wasn't supposed to go into battle. He did it anyway, and as a result, he did not suffer the blessing. I mean, he did not experience the blessing of the fulfillment of this prophecy. Why not? It was conditional on his obedience. Everyone following me? So when certain things are made, statements made that seem to be categorical, does that, did that sound pretty clear? Absolutely. But people don't live up to the conditions. Are they fulfilled? No. So we have to recognize this in the Bible. All right. What about this concern? Did Ellen White have a medical condition? Now this comes about because what happened when Ellen White was a young girl? Yeah, somebody threw a rock at her, which I don't advise for any person. And they threw a rock at her. She had a head injury. She was, she was out of it. She, she went into a coma, basically, for a while. And so people go later on, well, in her teens, what happened was then she had epileptic fits or hysteria. Um, you know, there's all these kinds of postulations about what happened to her as a teenager because a rock was thrown at her as a kid. You all follow the argument. So the rock's thrown, this causes something to happen, and she has some kind of uh, fits or seizures. And as a result, these are the trances, these are the visions, and she thinks that it's from God, but it's really just a medical condition. Everyone follow the argument? All right, so let's take a look. Firstly, this is pure speculation that there is any connection between the two. Medically, it's been shown that less than 5% of head injuries have anything to do with later epileptic seizures or, or fits or anything else, less than 5%. So they are speculating out of 5% instead of 95%. It's a speculation. Secondly, when the skeptics get together and they write different papers on what this medical condition is, they don't agree. They each come up with their own theory. Canwright uh, was probably the first one to come up with this. Uh, and so he, spec, you know, he speculated what it was, and then other medical doctors have gone in and, and speculated it could be this condition or that condition. The fact is there is no evidence that she suffered from any kind of medical condition. How do we know that? I mean, how can we state that with assurance? Well, for one, she has these visions that share remarkable details, and they are not delusional. Have any of you met a delusional person? I have, uh, and, and some of them are more interesting than others because they tend to come to evangelistic meetings for some reason. And then uh, you're halfway through the evangelistic meeting and someone will stand up and start giving a message from the Lord. And, and it's, uh, it's just kind of wacky, you know. I, the stars spoke to me. And it's like, uh, well, thank you. Well, would someone escort the star outside? And, and so people are delusional. We had, we had one guy who came to one of our programs he, uh, he, stood, uh, he stood up, uh, it, it was prayer time, and we, and we were having prayer together, and suddenly he came to the front, and he started speaking in this guttural voice, and then he fell down, and, and he believed that uh, Jesus was coming back in 2005. Well, I guess he's not a true prophet. So, uh, you know, there are delusional people. I've dealt with delusional people often. Nothing in Ellen White's life gives the appearance of a delusional person. She was very coherent. She spoke. She wasn't schizophrenic. She wasn't hysterical. She, she spoke 
very clearly. She had coherent thoughts. Everyone following me? There was nothing that indicated that this was delusional. But the most damning argument, I believe, is the life of Ellen White herself. She was unselfish, bright, and unaffected in later life, and yet she was never treated. How many of you have dealt with uh, epilepsy? Anybody dealt with epilepsy? I have it in my family. And um, as I look, in fact, one of my uh, nephews has had it from the age of three. It has severely impacted his life. Now, there are people who have mild epileptic fits every now and again, um, or I shouldn't say seizures, and so they have these seizures every now and again, and they're able to live normal lives. But what was happening in the early stages of Ellen White's life as a, as a teenager were these visions occurring uh, on an often basis. Were they? Absolutely. She had constant visions during that early part of her life. And so if it was an epileptic seizure, it would have left, unfortunately, mental impairment. And there is no indication of that. In fact, later on in her life, she says, I feel better now than I've ever felt in my whole life. And she was in her 80s. You know, she says, I've got great health, things are going well. And so there is no indication that there was any mental impairment. Uh, Often people who suffer from delusional thinking and other things are selfish, they're focused on themselves. Any of you dealt with this? Uh, if you go speak to medical doctors, what are these people like? They're often focused on themselves. They, they have a very narrow point of view. We see none of that in Ellen White's life. The weight of the evidence, that's, remember, that's what we're basing it on. The weight of the evidence clearly says that Ellen White had no medical condition. Yes, she did have a traumatic head injury as a child, but there is no evidence that it impacted on her overall life, and she was bright sane, funny, engaging throughout her life. There's no evidence that she had had a major trauma, and especially for the fact that it was never treated. Any questions on that? Okay, good. Did Ellen White ever deliberately falsify or hide information? Well, for instance, people are ridiculous. There's, there were peop- there's people who've made statements. Look, there was this booklet called A Word to the Little Flock. And in there, Ellen White made some statements about the shut door. And then later on, those statements were missing. She must have deliberately taken them out. Well, what's the real story? The real story was she didn't deliberately take them out. She used the manuscript she had available at the time. And she put together a booklet and said, this is as much as I can remember what I originally wrote. And she put that in a pamphlet, and she put that out there. Well, later on, somebody found the original. And they said, look, the original, there's some differences between the original and between what she put out now. They must have taken information out or deliberately falsified it. Well, she wrote a response herself and included that out with the original text. She published the original text and included a response and said, at the time, we were traveling. She used to travel all over the country. We didn't have access to the original documents. We thought that what we had was the original one. And in the end, she says it wasn't, but we found the, they, they eventually got hold of the original. And she says, here it is. You can clearly see that my views have not changed. And she explained her views. We will look at that in the next session. What did she believe about the shut door theory? She was never hiding anything. If you read Ellen White, she's just so honest. She just puts it out there. Here it is. You know, you have an accusation. Let me just write it down. Here's what I believe. You got a question. She would just tell you exactly how it happened. There's just this incredible honesty in when she puts anything else 
anything out. She's never hiding anything. You can access uh, everything that she has written. You can go and uh, go to the, the Ellen White vaults and you can access anything that she's written. All of her published writings are easily searched. I mean, let me ask you, is there anybody else, is there any other author that you can have this kind of access to? Can you think of any other author where you have a searchable database where you can look up anything that they've ever said? You know what's amazing to me? That with that searchable database of anything she's ever said, there's so few things that people can pick at. Isn't that amazing? If I had a searchable database of everything I'd ever written, Lord have mercy. You know, <laughs> imagine what they could come up with. My letters, I mean, this is not just the stuff that she's written in her published with. My letters to my girlfriends. Oh, imagine if that was put into a searchable database. You know what I'm talking about? So the fact that you can take everything that Ellen White's written and you can search it and you can put it out there and there's so little that people can pick at, isn't that remarkable to you? Just astounding. So what about this? Weren't Ellen White's writings edited? Didn't she edit her writings? I mean, weren't there paragraphs taken out and various things that were adjusted? Yes, they were, but always under her direction and often in consultation with others. The changes were often minor, you know, grammar or wording. We'll come to, to why uh, God allows that. However, sometimes entire paragraphs were deleted or changed. Now, that may be troubling for some of you, but honestly, folks, Adventists believe in progressive inspiration. That means a prophet grows in his or her understanding of God's will and purpose. Do you, do you agree with that? That means that although truth is constant, my understanding of truth will change over time, even if I'm a prophet. Does that make sense? Did Jesus' understanding of his mission grow as he grew older? Did it? Absolutely. As a three-year-old, do you think he fully understood his mission? No, you know, it grew as he grew. And so in the same way, Ellen White's understanding grew. So you'll find that initially when she's referring to the Holy Spirit, what pronoun does she use? It. She uses the pronoun it. But later on in her life, what does she, she do? She starts using he and him. What had happened? Her understanding of the Holy Spirit's role grew. You all following me? Good. So in order to help us understand this, we need to understand what inspiration is. Is inspiration mechanical? You know, so let's just say I'm inspiring you. What's your name again? Joshua. Okay, Joshua has become a prophet here. So now I am, and I've become God. This is scary already. All right, so I'm going to come and I'm going to give to Joshua my message. Now there's two ways. I can give him my message through a dream or a vision, reveal it to him. Or I can say, okay, Joshua, grab your pen. Okay, we're just going to grab a pen here. And you're going to, I'm going to move your hand and have you write it down exactly under my inspiration. Was the Bible written like that? There is no indication in the Bible that it was written like that. What about verbal? What do we mean by verbal? Verbal means the specific words that are used. Were those words, did God guide the exact selection of words that were used sometimes sometimes give me an example Moses talking to Pharaoh he was given some words to use but give me the most obvious example what was Ten Commandments okay now initially the Ten Commandments were mechanical they were written by 
God with his finger. But the version that Moses had, he had to quickly rewrite them because um, he, broke them. he broke them. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so it's, to some extent, there was, you know, you could have some mechanical. This, to some extent, there's verbal. But most of the Bible seems to have been God inspires the thoughts. He, ins- he reveals himself. And then people write down those thoughts. They, uh, they, they put them in their own words. I don't believe that God just impresses people. You know, some people wake up and say, I, I think I had a message from the Lord this morning. And I go, well, how did you have this message from the Lord? Well, I just feel impressed. I don't think Bible writers were just impressed. I think they were impressive. All right. So, here's, uh, here's Ellen White's understanding of biblical inspiration, which means this is the way she understood it about herself. She says, the Bible is written by inspired men, but it is not God's mode of thought and expression. It is that of humanity. God as a writer is not represented. Men will often say, such an expression is not like God. But God has not put himself in words, in logic, in rhetoric, on trial in the Bible. The writers of the Bible were God's penmen, not his Pen. In other words, he inspires the man, not the, inst- not, not the pen itself. Look at the different writers, she says. It is not the words of the Bible that are inspired, but the, the men that were inspired. Inspiration acts not on the man's words or his expressions, but on the man himself, who under the influence of the Holy Ghost, it's still inspiration, is imbued with thoughts. But the words receive the impress of the individual mind. How do we know that in the Bible? For instance, what does, what's Mark's favorite word? Immediately. Immediately. He just loves doing everything right away. You can tell Mark's personality. That's why he's running in the garden. All right. So immediately, he, you know, he gets up and, and everything that Jesus does is immediately. That's not necessarily saying that that's God's thought. He has to write down the word immediately. But that's one of his favorite words of Mark, and it just slips in. All right. The Bible points to God as its author, yet it was written by human hands. And the varied styles of its different books, it presents the characteristics of the several writers. The truths revealed are all given by inspiration of God, yet they are expressed in the words of men. The infinite one by his Holy Spirit has shed light into the minds and hearts of his servants. He has given dreams and visions, symbols and figures, and those to whom the truths are thus revealed have themselves embodied the thought in human language. Faith I Live by page 10. Everyone following the thought? So, when Ellen White doesn't write things exactly the way you would like to see it written, are we judging? Sometimes those are her words. They're not necessarily God's words. Now, immediately, as soon as I say that, I have to be careful, right? Because what happens? There's two kinds of people out there today. There's literalists who like to go by, you know, make sure every word is just the way it should be. And then there are what I call rationalists. They rationalize everything that the Bible or Ellen White says away because they, they want to make it suit their lifestyle. You all following me? So, so we, need to take, we need to be careful to respect the inspiration of what God has done without uh, becoming just literalists that try and make God into the words. I'm going to skip over that next quote, Faith I Live By, still page 10. Here's how I see it. Revelation is when God speaks through events. He reveals himself through visions, 
dreams, through Jesus Christ, through angels, and through history. Inspiration is when the prophets themselves are inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they bear witness to the event of revelation in the message from the people. Then when we come down to reading this, we need illumination. Through prayerful study of God's Word, the Holy Spirit then applies that truth of God's Word to our lives. So here's what happens. The Holy Spirit, through visions and dreams, through Jesus Christ, through angels, and through history works. Then the prophet, who himself is inspired, bears witness to this event of revelation. And how are they inspired? How are the prophets inspired here? What does the word inspired mean? God breathed into. God breathed into. And then we come along and we study the Word of God and we should never study the Word of God without prayer. So what is the common element across this? The Holy Spirit. The only way the Bible and Ellen White are going to make any sense to you is by the Holy Spirit. Everybody following me? That's the only possible way it will make sense. So when people write things like 50 contradictions and um, look at how Ellen White didn't say these words correctly, look, let's just... Let's just give some honesty to this. Everyone follow me? Just be honest. Let's not make a big deal out of this. Uh, so, for instance, one guy writes, uh, writes to Ellen White and said, You wrote to me and said that there were 38 beds, uh, 40 beds, sorry, in our sanitarium, but there were actually only 38. You must not be a prophet of the Lord. What do you think? Does it really matter? Yeah. Doesn't really matter. Would you think Ellen White was in vision going, okay, one, two, three? I mean, really, folks. So she, she relies on her understanding and she puts it in her words. What, do you think her message to that man was right on? Absolutely. Did she have all the details right about how many beds? No. Um, I'm not going to deal with, uh, with, uh, with the one issue quite yet. All right. James White view. Why are the reasons why there's contradictions in Ellen White? She's trying to express it in human language. Why does he say there's contradictions? This is what he says. What she says to some, he's speaking of his wife, to urge the tardy. What are the people who are tardy? People who are slow to get off the mark. Is taken by the prompt. Who are those? The zealous ones to urge them over the mark. So in other words, some people will take what Ellen White has to say and go, Oh, look. You know what we've got to do? We've got to cut out all this. We've got to cut out all that. We're just going to live on pure air and water. All right? So some get over prompt. And then what she says to caution the prompt and the zealous, the incautious ones, is taken by the tardy as an excuse to remain too far behind. So Ellen White writes to one group and says, look, don't do this. What do the other group say? Well, hallelujah. At last, we don't have to to worry about that anymore. And she's writing to one group and the other group says, oh, at last, that's just the counsel we needed. You, you understand what's happening? So people are always applying the opposite counsel to their lives. So James White said this was a real problem. That's true. So she would try and write to the, the group of works and tell them about faith. That's exactly what happened. So now, they, people get worried. They say, well, didn't Ellen White eat meat? Now, we have no... Yes, of course. In fact, originally, Ellen White even ate unclean meat until God showed her otherwise, right? <laughs> then cut out the unclean meat. She very clearly stopped eating unclean meat. And uh, then she even stopped eating meat 
But there was there were some time periods when it seems like she would allow meat on her table and she probably ate that meat during certain extreme situations. They were very rare. So although she wrote against meat, she was sometimes extremely rarely placed in situations where it made her difficult to eat any other diet. Was Ellen White eminently practical? All right, absolutely. And she had never made meat a test of fellowship. Can you eat meat and still be an Adventist? You can. Yeah, don't say amen too loudly. All right. So, all right. She did get to a point when she was in Australia where she banned meat from her table. And there is no evidence that she ate unclean meat, although Canwright made this allegation, and it seems totally unfounded. There's nothing to back it up. Her lifestyle was definitely vegetarian. Did Ellen White live up to, did her lifestyle live up to what she proclaimed? Yes or no? It did. Yes, it did. All right. Did Ellen White make factual mistakes? We already dealt with that. Yes, there are these minor factual, uh, quote, errors. And here's how I believe it's the same with the Bible. The Bible is infallible with regard to salvation, but not necessarily with regard to all factual details. Now, I hope this doesn't scare some of you. If you believed in verbal inspiration, this may be frightening. But if you believe God is infallible, has God given us everything we need to know about salvation in the Bible? Is it infallible? It is with regard to salvation. Everyone follow me? With regard to salvation, the Bible is infallible. But there are other things. For instance, Matthew. Matthew says that Jesus was sold for 30 shekels of silver. Who does he say prophesied that? Does anyone know? He says Jeremiah. But Jeremiah did not prophesy that. Guess who did? Zechariah. So he quotes Zechariah correctly, but he mistakenly says the word Jeremiah. Do you think I should give up on Matthew because he accidentally uses the wrong name? What do you think? <laughs> Absolutely not. And so we could go on. 1 Samuel 16, verse 10 and 11. So in the same way, uh, there are slips of the tongue in, in uh, Ellen White. Uh, 1 Samuel is just... Uh, you know, in the one case you have that David was the eighth son of Jesse, and another case you have that he was the seventh son of Jesse. Is it a big deal? Absolutely not. It's not critical. So, folks, what I've done is just in each of these cases, and I'm, I'm not going to go into much, much more information here because we need to close. In each of these situations, I believed that Ellen White was not in contradiction, that all of these challenges are trumped-up charges, and that she always pointed to Jesus Christ, and that the central infallible part of her writing is when she lifts up Jesus. Amen? Amen. And I take her works very seriously. I think we have done a great disservice in the Adventist church when we have neglected the writings of Ellen White. I think we are listening too much to the world, and we've left behind the great gift that God has given us. I know, I, I flung through it, but what I'm going to do is end, and then I'll take some questions. In the next section, we're going to deal with questions. All right, let's close and pray. Father God, what a tremendous, valuable gift that we've been given. Forgive us for listening to all of the accusations that are out there, the falsehoods. Really, Lord, all of this is but chaff. Help us to see the grand plan, the unfolding of the great controversy, the incredible counsel, the, the moving of the Holy Spirit as God has spoken through these powerful words. And help us to believe 
that you have given these things to us. In Jesus' name, amen.